Lesson 3 for October 8 to 14. Does Job fear God for naught? Sabbath afternoon, October 8. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word, and particularly the book of Job. And this week we're going to be looking at various parts of the Bible and comparing it with Job. But we just want to thank you that Jesus has provided a way for salvation, that you as the Godhead have participated in such a magnificent operation for us that we can have salvation and eternal life, and we want to praise you for that. But along the way, each of us faces temptations and woes and troubles, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and that we will be given the strength and the operational power that we need to do your will and to show our love for you to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Job chapter 2 and verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Let's read that again. Job chapter 2 and verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The book of Job opens up to us a whole new dimension of reality. It gives us a glimpse into the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And by doing so, it also provides us a template, a frame, an outline to help us better understand the world that we live in. A world that so often baffles, dazes, even frightens us with what it tosses our way. But the book of Job also shows that this great controversy is not merely someone else's fight in that we have nothing to do with it. If only that were the case. Unfortunately, it's not. As it says in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Satan has come down to the earth and to the sea, and we know for ourselves that his wrath is indeed great. Who among us, as flesh, hasn't felt that wrath? This week, we will continue to look at the first two chapters of Job as we seek to get a greater understanding of how we fit in as the great controversy continues to rage. Sunday, October 9. God's Servant Job. Question. Read Job chapter 1. Focus specifically on Satan's accusations against Job. What is Satan saying? What's implied in his attacks? Who, in the end, is Satan really attacking? Well, let's begin with Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. 
Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From whence do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them, when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Job chapter 1 verse 10 read, Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. The book of Job opens by referencing not only Job's righteousness and good character, 
but also his material possessions and fruitful household. These were the specific things that helped make Job revered, as it says in Job 1.3, the greatest of all the men of the East. And these too are the specific things that Satan hurls in God's face, saying basically, only because you have done this for him does he serve you. What then is implied in Satan's charge that if God were to take away things from Job, Job would surely curse you to your face, as it said in verse 11. The attack really is an attack against God himself. This is what the whole controversy is about anyway. If God were so wonderful, so good, then Job would obey and fear and worship him out of love and appreciation alone. After all, who wouldn't love a God who had done so much for him? In a sense, Satan was saying that God had all but bribed Job into being faithful to him. Thus, he claimed, Job served God not out of love for God, but out of his own selfish motives. Think about some of the most nasty and hateful political rulers who have faithful cronies loyal to the death because this ruler was good to them. If, in fact, the Lord really was the kind, loving and caring God that he is portrayed to be, then even if Job lost all those good things, Job would still serve the Lord. By claiming, however, that Job wouldn't stay faithful, Satan insinuates that even Job doesn't fully trust him and that Job is loyal only because of what God has given him. That is, in the end, according to Satan, Job's loyalty pretty much depends on whether it's a good business deal for him. So to finish today, why do you serve the Lord? Suppose your motives aren't perfect. If you had to wait until your motives were perfect, if they aren't, what might happen to you and your faith? Monday, October 10. Skin for skin, the battle continues. Job chapter 2 verses 1 through to 3 begins almost repeating some of Job chapter 1 verses 6 through to 8. The big change is the last part of Job chapter 2 and verse 3 where the Lord himself talks about how faithful Job remained despite the calamities that befell him. Thus, by the time we get to Job chapter 2 verse 3, it looks as if Satan's accusations have been shown as false. Job stayed faithful to God and didn't curse him, as Satan said he would. Question. Read Job chapter 2. What happens in these texts? Also, what is the significance of the fact that in both Job 1 and 2, these sons of God are there to witness the dialogue between God and Satan? And watch out for the phrase, skin for skin. Job chapter 2. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, 
from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him, and when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept, and each one tore his clothes and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. The phrase skin for skin is an idiomatic expression that has baffled commentators. The idea, though, is this. Let something happen to Job's own person, and that will cause him to show where his loyalty really is. Ruin Job's body, his health, and see what happens. And interestingly enough, what happens does not happen in a vacuum either. Both instances of the controversy in heaven, as revealed here in the book of Job, take place in the context of some sort of meeting between these heavenly intelligences and God. Satan is making his accusations publicly. That is, he is doing it before these other beings. This idea fits in perfectly with what we know about the great controversy. It is something that is unfolding before the whole universe. As we'll see in 1 Corinthians 4.9, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And Daniel chapter 7 verse 10, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through to 9, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. 
So the great dragon was cast out, that servant of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68 and 69, we read, But the plan of redemption had a yet broader and deeper purpose than the salvation of man. It was not for this alone that Christ came to the earth. It was not merely that the inhabitants of this little world might regard the law of God as it should be regarded, but it was to vindicate the character of God before the universe. The act of Christ in dying for the salvation of man would not only make heaven accessible to men, but before all the universe it would justify God and his Son in their dealing with the rebellion of Satan. It would establish the perpetuity of the law of God and would reveal the nature and the results of sin. Tuesday, October 11, Blessed be the name of the Lord. After Satan's first attack on Job, after the news came to him about all the calamities that befell him, how did Job respond? What is the significance of the fact that even amid such tragedy, Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. Let's read Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Central to God's government, a government based on love, is freedom of choice. God wants us to serve Him because we love Him, not because we are forced to serve Him. The Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 3, page 500, puts it this way. Satan insinuated that Job served God from selfish motives. He attempted to deny that true religion springs from love and an intelligent appreciation of God's character, that true worshippers love religion for its own sake, not for reward, that they serve God because such service is right in itself and not merely because heaven is full of glory, and that they love God because he is worthy of their affection and confidence, not merely because he blesses them. End of quote. In the book of Job, Job proved Satan's charges wrong. However, though God knew what would happen, Job still could have acted differently. He could have sinned. He could have charged God foolishly. God did not force Job to act as he did. Job's steadfast faithfulness, considering the circumstances, was an amazing testimony before men and angels. Question. Compare what happened in Job chapter 1 to what happened with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. How does the contrast make their sin appear so terrible? Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, 
Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve, sinless beings amid a pure paradise, transgressed and fell into sin because of Satan's attack. Job, amid utter pain and tragedy and ruin, stayed faithful to the Lord despite Satan's attacks. In both cases, we have a powerful example of the great issues at stake in regard to free will. So to finish today, how does Job's reaction here show us how cheap, easy and false our excuses for sin can often be? Wednesday, October 11. Job's Wife This is probably a good time as any to deal with another victim in the story of Job, his wife. She appears only in Job chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. After that, she vanishes from the story and from history. We're told nothing more about her. However, considering all that happened, who could imagine the grief that this unfortunate woman went through? Her tragedy, that of her children, and that of the other victims in chapter 1 show the universality of suffering. We are all involved in the great controversy. No one escapes. Question. Compare Job chapter 2 verse 3 to Job chapter 2 verse 9. What similar phrase is used both by God and Job's wife? And what is the importance of how they both use it? Well, first of all, Job chapter 2 and verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause? And then verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. It's no coincidence that the same phrase about his holding fast to his integrity appears in both texts. The word translated integrity comes from the same word used in Job chapter 1 verse 1 and Job chapter 1 verse 8, often translated blameless. The root word itself gives the idea of completeness and fullness. 
How unfortunate that Job's wife becomes someone who challenges Job on the very thing for which God commends him. In her grief, in her sorrow, she's pushing Job to do precisely what God says he wouldn't do. Though we certainly can't judge her, what a lesson to us all about how careful we have to be in order not to be a stumbling block to others, as we read in Luke chapter 17, verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Question. Read Job chapter 2 and verse 10. What powerful testimony does Job give here as well? Job 2.10 reads... But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And let's compare that with Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Job reveals the genuineness of his faith. He is going to serve the Lord both in the good times and in the bad. What's fascinating, though, is that Satan now disappears from the story and doesn't appear again. And though the text doesn't mention it, we can imagine Satan's frustration and anger at Job's response. After all, look at how easily he took down Adam and Eve and so many others. The accuser of the brethren, as it says in Revelation 12.10, was going to have to find someone else other than Job to accuse. And so to finish today, how do we learn to be faithful to God? both in the good times and in the bad? Thursday, October 11, Obedience Unto Death Job chapter 1 verse 22 reads, In all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job chapter 2 verse 10 reads, In all this Job did not sin with his lips. In both cases, despite the attacks, Job stayed faithful to the Lord. Both texts stress the fact that Job did not sin either with actions or with words. Of course, The texts don't say that Job wasn't a sinner. They would never say that, because the Bible teaches that we are all sinners, as we read in 1 John 1.10. If we say that we have not sinned, we have made him a liar, and his word is not in us. Being blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil, as we read in Job 1.1, does not make a person sinless. Like everyone else, Job was born in sin and needed a saviour. Nevertheless, despite all that came upon him, he remained faithful to the Lord. 
In this sense, in his own way, Job could be seen as a kind of symbol, a faint example of Jesus, as we'll see in Lesson 14, who, amid terrible trials and temptations, didn't give up, didn't fall into sin, and thus refuted Satan's charges against God. Of course, what Christ did was so much bigger, grander and more consequential than what Job did. Nevertheless, the simple parallel remains. Question. Read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through to 11. How did Job's experience reflect what happened here? Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Though in a terrible and tough environment, his body weakened by lack of food, Jesus, in his humanity, in the likeness of sinful flesh, as it says in Romans 8.3, did not do what the devil wanted him to do, just as Job didn't either. And also, just as Satan disappeared from the scene after Job stayed faithful, after Jesus resists Satan's last effort against him, Scripture said that the devil left him. That was in Matthew 4.11. Actually, we should look at James chapter 4, verse 7, which reads, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Yet, what Jesus faced in the wilderness was only the start. His real test would come at the cross, and here, too, despite everything thrown at him, even worse than what Job faced, Jesus stayed faithful even unto death. So to finish the day, what hope does Christ's obedience unto death offer us, and what does it tell us about how we should live in response to his obedience? Let's finish the day with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross.
Friday, October 14. Students of the book of Job who delve into the Hebrew come across an interesting phenomenon. Job's wife's words to him are translated curse God and die in Job chapter 2 verse 9. Job chapter 1 verse 5 is translated it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And in Job one eleven is translated but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. In each case, however, the word translated curse comes from a word that means bless. The word from the root brook, B-R-K, is used all through the Bible for bless. It's the same root used in Genesis 1.22 when God blessed the creatures he had made. The same root is used in Psalm 66 verse 8, O bless our God, you peoples. Why then is the same verb, which means bless, translated as curse in these few texts? First of all, if the idea of blessed were meant in these texts in Job, the text would be nonsensical. In Job 1.5, why would Job want to offer sacrifices to God in case his sons had blessed God in their hearts? The context demands a different meaning. The same with Job 1.11 and 2.5. Why would Satan think that if calamity befell Job, he would bless God? The context demands that the meaning be curse instead. Also, why would Job rebuke his wife for telling him to bless God in Job 2, 9 and 10? Given the context, the text makes sense only if the idea of curse is meant. Why then did not the author use one of the common words for curse? Scholars believe that it's a euphemism because the idea of writing down the concept of cursing God was offensive to the author's religious sensibilities. We can see the same thing in 1 Kings 21 verses 10 and 13 where the word translated blaspheme is from brook as well and it means bless. So Moses used the word bless instead of the actual word for curse even though it's obvious that the idea of curse was intended. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, in times of crisis, why is it so natural for people to question the reality of God or to question what God is like? Amid the harsh reality of what it means to live in a fallen world, a world in which the great controversy is real, why must we keep the reality of the cross always before us? And two, Though we know the background to what was going on in the story of Job, as far as we can tell, Job didn't know it. All he knew were the calamities that befell him. He didn't know the bigger picture. What should this tell us about how, amid trials, we need to remember that there's a bigger picture than we often don't see or understand, and how we can learn to draw comfort from this realisation? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Filling the Emptiness, Part 
one. As the youngest child in a Romanian family and the only daughter, Alina was showered with love. Yet she felt an emptiness deep inside, but she didn't know what it was. Her friends invited her to join them at the disco, where she could fill her emptiness with music and dancing. But her parents forbade her to go. One of Alina's friends invited her to visit the Seventh-day Adventist church. Alina had heard that Adventists were good and honest people, but her grandmother warned her that faithful Orthodox members don't go inside of Protestant churches. So Alina didn't go. Then someone invited Alina to attend a week of prayer series. These meetings aren't regular worship services, she reasoned, so there can be no harm in going. Her father gave her permission to go. So she went, partly out of curiosity, about what other churches teach. She attended every meeting and learned that Jesus wants to be her personal friend, that he loves her, died for her, and is coming again. For the first time in her life, Alina felt happiness. She wanted to hear more and decided to attend the church on Saturday. When Alina's father realised that she wanted to attend worship services on Sabbath, he was angry. But Alina had tasted the love of Christ and knew that she must learn more. However, when she tried to leave home to go to the church, her father stopped her. This family has only one religion, he said. No one in this house will bring in any other religion. But as Alina read her Bible and learned other truths she hadn't known, she decided that Sabbath is God's day on Saturday. She wanted to attend church, but she knew her parents wouldn't allow her to go. So she told them that she was going to visit her grandmother. On her way to church, she stopped in at her grandmother's for a few minutes, but then went on to church. Her grandmother knew what Elena was doing and warned her that it would bring sadness to the family. A widow lived next door to Elena's family. She had heard of Elena's desire to attend church. She invited Elena to come to her house on Friday afternoons so she could slip off to church for the evening Vespers program. Elena was careful to leave church early so she wouldn't be seen walking with Adventists, and this story is continued next week. Actually, this Sabbath, the 15th of October, my wife and I expect to be attending the Boston Temple Church in Boston in Massachusetts. And if you're listening there, perhaps you should look out for us. We'll just be attending to worship as a regular parishioner. Have a great Sabbath. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.